Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. Instead of the balming birdsong of the North Pennines or the tinkling of becks, the background noise that you will hear today is the M6. And I'm here beside the M6 for the second time on Country Stride with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. (laughs) I love the M6 and it's a wonderful occasion. It's a wonderful occasion. We've had a a wet few weeks in Cumbria. Haven't we just? God dear, after that endless spring, the heavens opened and the the tarns have refilled. But um, we've got a rare break in the weather today and um, even a little bit of blue sky up there, Mark. So uh, it heralds well for our wonder. And the reason we're here by the M6 today is because we're talking about meeting places and we're talking about the confluence of great routes. Indeed, rivers and roads. We're going to cover a span of probably 7,000 years and we're going to draw those together in a sequence of events and locations. And our guide today, Bruce Benison, has a great grasp of that. Uh, He's an archaeologist used to work for the Cumbria Library Service uh, and Museums, worked in Carlisle Castle, but he's fundamentally an archaeologist and a historian and has a perspective on things, and which is precisely what we need. This is a golden opportunity for Country Stride to draw the whole landscape together in one podcast. Yeah, this is quite a challenge, isn't it? Because throughout the history of Country Stride so far, we've dipped in and out of various times in history. But our challenge to Bruce today is to bring all of this together into a single timeline in 45 minutes uh, and also into a single journey of just five miles. So fingers crossed he'll be able to uh, perform his magic. But I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to going back to school, Mark, and Absolutely. Uh, brushing up on my history. Absolutely. It's only one half of a good game of football. Right. <laughs> you cancel that bit. <laughs> <laughs> The first half or the second half of a good game of football? Well, I'm sure Bruce will score many a a good strike today. There we go, and a characteristic pun to kick off the podcast. Let's go and meet Bruce. Well, Country Stride is back in the country again, aren't we? In a great meadow with a field of about 20 black cattle. And I'm looking east towards Crossfell, the Pennine's highest hill. I'm in the company of Bruce Benison. Hello, Bruce. Good to see you. Hello, Mark. Good to be here. Now, can you tell us a little bit about your career? My career? Well, I'm retired now. I've uh, lived and worked in uh, Cumbria for 30 years. Do you believe? But before that, uh, I started off basically as a field archaeologist. I trained in archaeology and geography. I did uh, five years archaeological digging, mostly in Wales, uh, in all weathers, uh, until my knees began to object. You oh, see, this is, what, this is what happens to archaeologists. And so I then was lucky enough to move into museum work, but still doing archaeology. And um, from there, uh, I got a job up in uh, Cumbria 30 years ago, It was the first uh, county museums officer for the county of Cumbria. But I've retired from all of that now, and I'm sort of trying to get back into uh, exploring the fantastic sort of archaeology and history of the county a little bit more. Understandably. It's a county... It's got more to it than many people are aware. They know about the hills, but actually the cultural history that goes back a long time is one that's still in its infancy in many people's perceptions. Anyway, today we're at Emont Bridge. We're by the M6 motorway, and people whiz up and down there, and we're pretty unaware of this location. We're close to Penrith, but we're having a, a special walk today with Bruce. Where are we heading? 
It is a short walk, but it involves uh, various periods of time, really stretching back from about three to 4,000 BC right through to uh, at least 1,000 AD. In a short space of time, we're going to walk through about 5,000 years of history. And uh, water features in this uh, walk quite a lot. We've got two rivers, the Lowther and the Emont. Uh, and it's those rivers and the meeting of those rivers and the crossing of those rivers which has given us the theme for today, really, which is about how people have reacted to that geographical situation. And all the places that we will see have some direct bearing on the rivers, really, whether it's the meeting of the rivers uh, or the crossing of the rivers. And this is about uh, this location's position in a much bigger picture which is the movement of people and trade uh, through time, really starting in the Neolithic period, which is going to be the subject of our first location. Uh, and from the Neolithic period through time, well, really right through to the present day, because of that background, uh, symphony of the M6 is uh, proof that, in fact, that trade and that movement continues through to the present day. Well, now, that's given us a bit of a lead in, uh, Bruce. Now, we're by a bank here. Uh, I think we'll wander around the other side of this rather intriguing bank. Well, we're coming round the banking, uh, high banking, composed of beckstone, huge beckstones, a massive undertaking, whoever constructed it, and growing on it irregularly is a ragged array of ageing ash trees. And we're coming into this great amphitheatre with one standing stone right at the heart of it. And for listeners that uh, aren't quite tuned into exactly where we are, we're at Maybra, just about a mile south of Penrith. The use of the word amphitheatre, Mark, I think is very appropriate. It looks like an amphitheatre. It's a great circle of this uh, embankment around us. Uh, and it's got one entrance into it, a very clear entrance. There's no bank at this point, and we've walked in through that entrance into the centre of this amphitheatre. And uh, <clears throat> today this is probably a, a shadow of its former self in terms of how high this bank would have been. As you say, it's made out of beck pebbles or river pebbles out of the Emont behind us uh, towards Penrith. And, uh, you know, point number one really is to imagine this was not built by uh, a JCB or other brands of excavator and um, this was done by hand by people carrying the stone in baskets, dumping it into this uh, great setting here. We've got one surviving um, stone in the centre of it here which we'll walk up to in a moment but uh, old antiquarian plans and descriptions of the site uh, from the 18th century onwards refer to uh, other stones. There were apparently four stones in the central setting uh, in what was often referred to as a cove mm -hmm. um, and that would have been a sort of some sort of sacred sacrosanct centre to this uh, great amphitheatre and there were four stones in the, in the entrance passageway as well. So the critical thing to ask at this point is why is it here? This amazing great what I would describe as a donut which is 200 yards wide, enough room for a thousand people to assemble. It is a huge monument and uh, little known in the <coughs> even within Cumbria because as you can tell most of the population of Cumbria and England and the rest of the country drive past it or go past it on the train so it's it's not uh, not well known but we have to go back 5,000 years or so possibly more to understand perhaps why it is here and why the other hinges are here and, and it might be worth mentioning that if people are uh, wondering what a henge is. The, the best known henge that we've got in Britain is Avebury, and that's uh, it's bigger than Maybra, but really uh, Maybra is in the same category as Avebury, basically. It appears to be the same function. So that's what a henge is uh, look like, and this is what Maybra looks like. It's probably here because of a number of factors. One is that the, the, the confluence of the two rivers, the Lowther and the Emont, the crossing of the rivers to be able to get across them in a time long before bridges and things like that, implying that we're on some sort of routeway, long distance routeway, in a landscape which, as I've said, is between the, the mountains of the Lake District to the west of us and the high Pennines to the east, uh, up what is, I, I understand, because I'm not a geologist, uh, is a rift valley. 
technically a half rift valley. It's got a, the Pennine Fault, which is what we can see when we look over towards Crossfell. All of that is caused by a great shift in the tectonic plates, pulling apart, sliding down, creating this valley. That enabled people in prehistory, after the ice retreated, to move up easily at low level up the western side of Britain uh, and it became a, a, a established as a routeway uh, for people traveling from south to the north, north to south, probably over vast distances because recent archaeological work, you mentioned Orkney, I, I go and volunteer up at Orkney at a place called the Nessa Brodger and that's showing that people and objects traveled up to Orkney in the Neolithic period, probably around 3000, 4000, maybe even BC, bringing uh, artifacts and pottery, stone, all sorts of things with them from all parts of the country. So coming back to why is Maybra here, it is highly likely that it is here because it, it is a marker in the landscape. In a time before writing, a time before maps, if you were traveling the length and breadth of this country, you would need to know where you were going. And the verbal descriptions of that uh, would be, you need to go up the two big rivers where the waters meet, uh, and there's a crossing point and there's a large, and whatever they call them, we call them henges, but this was a meeting place undoubtedly. It was possibly also a place on a route from the industry of the Langdale stone axes, which uh, people may be familiar with, but they were roughed out <clears throat> high up in the Langdales, brought down lower levels and polished up into beautiful stone axes and traded all over the country uh, and there are thousands of them, literally over 2,000, I think, at this point, known. There will be many more. It has been uh, suggested that places like Maybro are relatively close to the source, as it were, of those types of artefacts, was perhaps a, a trading point. So it's a meeting place in prehistory. It's a marker in the landscape. It's possibly a trading place, certainly processional, I suspect. It was all to do with pilgrimage. Yeah. Let's call it pilgrimage from north to south, perhaps as far away as uh, Stonehenge and Avebury, uh, through Cumbria, up that great routeway up the western side of the country, heading up to Orkney, uh, and part of perhaps what would be a lifetime uh, experience for people in prehistory to make that pilgrimage, passing through what we now know as Cumbria. If you could transport us momentarily back five, six, seven thousand years when this was an active site, what sort of garb would the people have been wearing? They would have been wearing, of course, the products of the landscape and their farming, uh, which would be leather, uh, woven, you know, wool uh, materials are perfectly capable of doing that. You've got to remember that we're talking about the Neolithic, we're talking about people who were the first farmers, and that was the big difference between them and the nomadic peoples who had inhabited this landscape before they'd arrived, in between the ice retreating and the, the climate warming up and the landscape becoming capable of sustaining life, they were the Mesolithic or the Middle Stone Age people. The Neolithic, the New Stone Age people, were different people who were the first farmers. And they had come over thousands of years. They had moved from Turkey across Europe and ended up in Britain, spreading across the, the European continent. And it has to be said, of course, at this point in time, we're talking about Britain not being an island. We were physically connected to Europe. So they had moved across that landscape. And by the time they had arrived, uh, Britain was an island. The Mesolithic people effectively had been trapped here. The Neolithic people, bringing their farming traditions, moved into the landscape. They were much better at exploiting the landscape around them, a process that has sadly continued through to the present day. Um, but they were the first farmers. They, they effectively put paid to the Mesolithic peoples because the traditions were completely different. We're talking about a, a population in this country in the low hundreds of thousands at best possibly tens of thousands, so not a lot of people around, staying in one place because they could farm it. And as soon as you stay in one place, can live there all year round and generate surpluses, then you can begin to build big monuments like Maybra, like Stonehenge, like Avebury, etc., etc. They are points of stability. Coming back to the why are they here, it is a statement. You know, they are statements in a landscape 
saying uh, we are here, we continue to survive here, we're doing well, uh, and look at the size of our henge uh, that we can create here. It's a great cultural statement. I think we should wander on a little bit more. It's lovely at the moment, Bruce. We're coming down to the actual Emont Bridge in the little village of Emont Bridge where we will physically cross the river Emont, which is quite a strong body of water even now in July. And the banks immediately to our left uh, are luxuriant with waving grasses and rose bay, willow herb, and it's, it's absolutely a sheer delight. Now, there's traffic going over this little narrow bridge on the A6. Crossing points are strategic and significant. Crossing points are vitally important and today function in the same reason that they functioned before, which is about movement of people, movement of stuff, trade, and it's still going on. And I mean, you know, Emont Bridge and its little village don't date back. You know, that bridge is not prehistoric. The crossing point is not an old one because we are walking towards the old crossing point. But this one is on a road which uh, has diverted off the old Roman road for practical reasons, heading for Penrhyd, the old ford, and the town of Penrith. You know, so it functions, continues to function in the way that it was designed to do uh, hundreds of years ago. And of course Penrith is a significant town because on that far bank, the northern bank, we're into Cumberland, aren't we? And Penrith itself was a, sort of like a tribal capital at some point? Ah, well... <clears throat> uh, there's a, there's ah, a well, question. There's a question indeed. As we move forward in time, and we're leaping forward from uh, Maybrahenge in time, some, shall we say, 3,000 years to the point of the arrival of the Romans, and the tribe of this area appears to be the Carvetti. And the tribal capital of the Carvetti, initially, before the Romans arrived, one theory is, was here, not necessarily in Penrith, but at an area around Clifton Dykes, which is just south of us here, uh, because of aerial photographic evidence in recent years, which comes back to our location next to a crossing point near a confluence of the rivers. And the fact that we've got a Roman fort here as well at that crossing point may well be something to do with the fact. And ultimately, the Carvetti appear to have relocated their tribal capital to Carlisle because we have evidence from Roman milestones in this locality near Broome, which give the physical distance in Roman miles to what is called the, the, the tribal capital in Latin of the Carvetti in Carlisle. The distance is correct. So we move, the Carvetti perhaps appear to move from this location to Carlisle, to the bright lights uh, <laughs> of Carlisle. And, and the name Carvetti is, the, is Latin, is it? And Carvio is deer, I believe. It could mean that this was a, abundant with deer, red deer, roe deer, and so forth. Anyway, let's make steps over that lovely handsome stone bridge. Well, we're still within range of the A66, um, but we've just crossed over Broomcastle Bridge, over what is now the combined waters of the Lowther and the Emont, heading east towards the actual Eden confluence, which is some three or four miles downstream from here, beyond Udford. Just here, there is the site of a Roman bridge or crossing point of a Roman road, because beside where I'm standing, there is the great Norman castle, which is Broom Castle. Broom, presumably, because there was a lot of broom growing in this vicinity. It's a very substantial red sandstone building and survived in remarkable order. And it's a popular place, English heritage of care for it. Perhaps, Bruce, you could tell me a little bit about the structure itself before we actually move into the proper timeline that we're really looking towards, which is the Roman one. Well, absolutely. The uh, fantastic sort of edifice of Broome Castle as we see it today owes a lot to the Romans, to be honest, because a lot of it is built of Roman stone from the Roman fort, which it's sitting uh, at a corner of. 
although they're separated in time by pretty close on a thousand years, they're both here for the same reason, really, which is the crossing of the river um, and the control of that crossing. Looking at the medieval remains of the castle, the Red Sandstone Castle, at its heart lies this amazing Norman keep. It's got some similarity to uh, Carlisle Castle and the keep at Carlisle. It's a very solid, substantial sort of focus for the defensive structure of the castle itself. And like I say, if you were to uh, climb up inside the castle, as you can do, if you're very careful and keep your eyes open, you'll see that there are uh, inscribed Roman stones built into uh, the fabric of the castle. So behind us now, we're looking into a great meadow with some low banks and an angular line of those banks with sheep grazing there. But this is the Roman fort. Now, we've got a period in history that we haven't covered now yet from Mabra to the Roman period. That's right. We've walked in time uh, through 3,000 years, just, just like that. Just along, like that, 3,000 steps maybe. Peace and tranquility along the banks of the, the River Emont. What happened in those 3,000 years, we need to run quickly through. Uh, I talked about the Neolithic at Maybro, what happened next after those first farmers arrived here. Uh, was arrival of another set of new people, the Beaker people. They brought a distinctive type of pottery and they also brought the start of the use of metals, in their case copper. And recent DNA research uh, on the Beaker people seems to suggest they were actually uh, different people and they effectively appear to have wiped out the Neolithic population. So we get the arrival of the Beaker people and the, the arrival of metal technology... That effectively puts pay to uh, stone tools. Then you get into the Bronze Age and you move rapidly on into the Iron Age with all the arrival and development of these new metal technologies, which happens in the last uh, 800 years or so BC. Uh, we then get at the point that we are now at, which is the arrival of the Romans, uh, their administration and their army, more importantly. Mm -hmm. And behind us in this tranquil pasture are the earthworks of the Roman fort of Brucavum. And it's been stripped of all its yeah, stonework. It, was, uh, it would undoubtedly have been a stone fort, stone gateways, a stone curtain walled, probably towers at the corners. Uh, and most of that stone uh, has gone into the castle, the medieval castle. Undoubtedly, a fair amount of it has gone into the farmhouses and buildings round about as well. Uh, we are too close to Penrith for it not to have been a very convenient quarry mm. uh, for some ready-made ready, ready worked stone. So uh, it's disappeared, leaving just the gentle earthworks that we see behind us. The classic earthworks of a Roman fort in a rectangular sort of playing card shape they were, generally speaking, all built to the same plan, so uh, you can't go wrong in, in imagining the layout of a Roman fort no. most of the time. If you know, want to know what the gateway is, you have to go to South Shields, Arbea. They've got a classic one there, haven't they? They have, indeed, and it's, uh, it's a good way of getting a, an impression of the scale of these types of constructions. There is no doubt of the impact, I think, on populations, particularly in the north of England here, or north of Britain, with the arrival of the army and the construction of these forts. They were here to stay. Those were big statements in the landscape, uh, making sure that everybody got the message about who was in charge. They didn't see themselves as ever leaving. Oh, I think they had the confidence that is built upon a professional army, basically. I talked about the, the reason why the fort was here was the river crossing. There is another possible reason which was postulated a few years ago based on aerial photography evidence, uh, which is that the tribal capital of the native tribe, the Iron Age tribe that we've talked about, the Carvetti, was just behind us in this mm -hmm. landscape south of the river. So that's another, another possibility, just to repeat it really, as to why this fort was here. This was a focus, a concentration of Roman roads coming from all angles. We've got roads coming at us here, really, from the four points of the compass. We've got a road coming out from the south, which is coming up from Ribchester up through the Loon Gorge, uh, heading to this point. We've got a road coming over the Stainmore Pass from the east, going through Kirby Thor to us here. 
we've got a ro- the road carrying on to the north up to the uh, Roman town of Lugavalium and Hadrian's Wall. The dating evidence suggests that this was probably built as part of the advance northwards. So it predates Hadrian's Wall by something like 40 years, built around AD 80, something like that. But it had a long life. Yes. Um, and the it, other routes that came here? The, the only other route that we know of is the western route, uh, which could have taken a course which, uh, as yet, undetermined really in the vicinity of Bassenthwaite and Keswick, but certainly heading towards Papcastle uh, and the west coast. Or, if you sign up to the idea, it was the route that goes over what's called High Street down towards Ambleside. There's some logic in the High Street route. You tend to look at it and you think, why on earth would you put a road up that high? But they did the same with the Maiden Way from Kirby Thor going over to Whitley Castle up over the flanks of Cross Fell. So I think, again, it was just expressing the sort of confidence that's inherent in having a paid professional army is that they will go wherever you tell them to go. If it involves climbing mountains in the north of England, that's what you've got to do. So there's some evidence from the burials in the uh, cemetery that now lies under the root of the A66 that, that uh, a lot of those people who were buried, who were not necessarily the soldiers, but possibly their families, uh, came from the Danube area. So the garrisons that were based here over time will have come from eastern central Europe, places like that. When they did excavations at Burnswark, they found the ballista there. It was lead that came from Cologne. Yeah, I think it's another case of, you know, the movement of people. They were talking about it in the context of the Neolithic. This is movement of people for power and military purposes. Well, we've had a a lovely little fill of Roman knowledge. We want to move on a few more years, and that requires us to go to Clifton. It's nice to find a quiet, comparatively quiet spot anyway, after all the, the noise of the A66, which dominated the vicinity of Broome. I've got a lovely outlook here. I'm looking towards Bloedpot Hill. Wow, and I can see Helvellyn across the meadows. It's a lovely scene. It's very tranquil. A place of peace, you might describe. And it's a moment to reflect on that period of time post the Romans. Could you give me that little period of time and then we'll get to where that peace might be relevant? Yeah, so moving forward in time, the Roman occupation of Britain lasted nigh on 400 years and then for a variety of reasons it all began to fall apart. They had to protect their eastern empire so they withdrew troops and eventually withdrew administration and uh, famously in AD 410 wrote to the sort of provincial governor of Britain saying, you're on your own basically and there is no more help. So the money supply stops, uh, the troops don't get paid. By that time, a lot of the Roman army was made up of British troops, so they weren't going to go anywhere. This was home. This was home, so they're not going to go anywhere. You're left with a situation whereby the smarter garrison commanders basically decided to start forming their own little territories around the forts. They became the Romano-British sort of nobility. That was a brief reflowering of Britishness after the end of the Roman occupation. And it's surprising how fast the, the trappings of Roman civilization disappeared. Fell basically. away. Yeah. Just completely fell away. Uh, there's the use of money disappears for some hundreds of years. Uh, the ability to repair all these splendid buildings is lost because the skills might be there, but there's nobody to pay for them. Uh, and so uh, it all changes. It goes into what's what used to be called the Dark Ages, but for a number of reasons that's not technically true. But what happens in rapid succession is that you get invading hordes of Angles and Saxons over from Germany and the sort of northern Europe, and uh, they appear in the mid-5th uh, century onwards, and so you get the development of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. The power ebbs and flows. The Celtic tribes, particularly in the Western Britain, have various points of resurgence and uh, fighting against the Anglo-Saxons. And then, of course, you have the added complication of the arrival of uh, the Scandinavians in the form of Danes and Norwegians, first in uh, true Viking fashion, turning up in their boats and raiding along the coast, particularly the monasteries, which were a good focus point for instant wealth. 
um, but followed by uh, settlers and farmers. And in our area here in Cumbria, we feel that a lot of those Scandinavians were second-generation uh, Scandinavians driven out of Ireland by resurgent Irish kings. And gave us many of the place names we recognise today. That's quite true, and, and uh, increasingly evidence for their settlement has been found most recently in our area at Kenwitton, uh, for example. And so they're there all around us, as you say, leaving evidence in their place names. Um, and then, in amongst all of this, we get to the point that we are uh, interested in today, which is the arrival of Athelstan, the noble stone uh, in Old Norse. And where did he come from? He's a Saxon, Anglo-Saxon. He's the grandson of King Alfred, the illegitimate uh, child of Edward the Elder. And uh, in the way of these things, by dint of uh, some careful manoeuvring and uh, succession, he ends up being the king of the Saxons and then eventually the West Saxons uh, as well. He is obviously a very clever man. He was apparently credited as being literate as a child, mm. something of a rare Quality. occurrence. Uh, yes, indeed. But he was a man of ambition. We have this notion of the Treaty of Emont. There's no evidence of anything written down. What was the purpose of it? This is Ethelstan being very clever and canny and wishing to unify what we would call England today, basically, uh, the majority of it, under one king. Right. The great king, the emperor of all of England. And this was the first time that we see a, you know, we see a single king pulling together the whole of the island, as at least in the southern part of the island, under one reign. Right. And this that is was England at its birth, in a sense. In a sense. And of course it did include some of Scotland. It did, in the form of uh, Strathclyde, which uh, stretched from the Clyde down into our area here. There's a lot of debate about where this peace treaty between Athelstan and the uh, soon-to-be subservient kings of Strathclyde, of the Northumbrians, of the uh, Welsh, and the Cumbrians themselves, uh, all came together. They were, they were persuaded to come and meet in the vicinity of Eamont Bridge uh, to sign up to the idea of Athelstan becoming emperor of all England. Uh, he was obviously a good negotiator and persuaded them thus, and uh, it was to remain relatively peaceful for a short space of time until uh, our friends in Scotland and elsewhere decided this was probably a bad idea and uh, went independent again. Mm. But uh, he did succeed in this peace treaty. The debate about where actually was it, well, I think it's unlikely to have been uh, in Emont Bridge because it didn't exist. What no. did exist at that point would have been the remains of a Roman fort. Clearly. Good, good possibility for, so, for a man of intelligence who was interested in history and culture. Because Maybrough itself was too old for it at that time. Well, it would be, it's there today, so it was certainly there in his time. Quite. So um, uh, was that a, another possibility, a natural, uh, a natural amphitheatre? As we said, yeah. You know, redolent with power of the ancestors um, and a place where you might have thought that would have been a good candidate. Mm. So I think there are two candidates. I think Maybrough is a possibility, uh, the fort is a possibility, and actually I should mention a third because the Venerable Bede mm -hmm. uh, mentions the monastery at Dacre. Uh, right. Now, it's possible, because that was there. Uh, That's up towards Ellswater. Yes, and wonderful, Bridge. beautiful setting today, Dacre Church. And it was a monastery, it was a pre-Norman uh, monastery, raided by, by the Scandinavians. It's probably third on the list for my liking in terms of where this would take. I think Athelstan was interested in making a point. Because the name Dacor refers to the river, it's a Dacor. Yeah, decorum, yeah, mm. yeah. So it's possible that, again, it's sort of somewhere on that river. And so you can just see the handsome sandstone walls of Broom Castle, built on the corner of the Roman fort, and that's the next stage in the timeline that we're following it's another of the what happened next, really. We've had the what happened next with the Romans. We've had Athelstan in the 10th century, 927. Then we get the Normans. So we're all familiar enough, I think, with 1066 and all of that. It wasn't actually 1066 up here. It was 1092 uh, and William Rufus. But nevertheless, the arrival of the Normans was the next big event in history. 
represented by the construction of their power bases, which ultimately were to become these big stone castles like uh, Broome, like Carlisle, Brough, etc. There are various examples of that in Cumbria. They were the successful invaders. They again put their stamp very much on this country. Uh, you can, for the first time, see that legacy in writing in documents that still exist uh, showing their land ownership and their successions and the passing down of land amongst families etc etc so the normans arrive put their stamp on the landscape and then we get into this whole swathe of history which dates from the 12th century onwards coming through time to where we're going next which is up at clifton tower our end stop if you like for this Narrative. narrative today um, for the sake of convenience um, and represents that point in time when we've moved on from the Normans, we're now into, we've got into English history in the realms of King Henry VIII, etc, etc, well into the medieval period. Right, well, we'd better get up there. We've got to go there now, haven't we? Well, we come up the hill, up into the village of Clifton. On our left, we've passed the church of St Cuthbert, set on top of the bank. And on our right, the great walls of Clifton Hall Farm. And we've skipped over the wall on a footpath that led us behind the farm buildings to a substantial tower, which you can see from the A6, with its castellated top. And this is Clifton Hall. Now, this dates from the 1400s. Uh, there's a quad bike going by. This is very much in the midst of an active farm. So what period does this relate to in our timelines, Bruce? Well, we've jumped forward again in time. We were talking about the Romans, we were talking about uh, Ethelstan and the Treaty of Emont, and now we've uh, raced past the Normans again at Broome Castle to Clifton here. And what we're looking at specifically here is the remains of a so-called Peel Tower, one of these border towers reflecting the turbulent times that continued in the area despite the arrival of the Normans, uh, the resurgent Scots still causing trouble uh, in the 15th and early 16th century. The architectural response to all of that in this border area, and perhaps I should put a health warning in here that it's not just the Scots, it's of course the English as well. Oh, equally bad. Uh, so, but forgive me um, for not mentioning that earlier. But um, the, the architectural response to that, if you could afford it, was to build yourself peel towers. Yes, looking at it from this southerly aspect, it's just got the solitary tower, very substantial it is, but it will have had a big hall structure to the south that's now missing. It was a, a tremendous domestic accommodation. You can see reflected in the architecture various blocked apertures, old roof lines. You've got some sort of corbling up there holding up uh, probably a walkway around the tower predating by the look of it the uh, the later sort of roof structure that was tacked onto the side of it. What we've got here at Clifton is a rather nice surviving example of something which is a bit between a uh, an architectural statement and a practical function because it's got rather too many openings in it to be a really workable defensive structure and so it's more about a status and the expression of position in society as anything I mean, practical. So when the trouble was brewing uh, the area that was in front of us at the moment where there was a lost building now will have been a, probably a stock enclosure, a barn, uh, the, 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 uh, what we know as, as basils, and then the tower was a domestic area. Yeah, that's right, and you would retreat inside the solid nature of your tower to buy yourself time. This was never going to withstand prolonged assault by any attackers because they would just burn you out, basically. But you needed to buy time for the uh, Board of Marchers Lord's troops to come and rescue you, by which, you know, you would be summoning help. I mean, if you're in trouble here at this location, then things have gone seriously wrong in terms of protecting the border. But it's not out of the question. It was more likely, perhaps, to happen a bit closer to the border, rescued once the, the hue and cry had gone up that the reavers were in the area and you would retreat inside and hope for the best, basically. It's fascinating to see this. And uh, as you say, it's a working farm. There's a gin house there. 
for when they ground corn, not using water from a water mill, they use a horse going round and round. So it's a very busy farm with this tower house still in the midst of it and right by the motorway. We can never get away from the sound of that passage of time. So we better head down the hill again and we're heading up Broom Hall and then through to the round table. Well, we've moved just a little bit further in relationship to Clifton Tower. And Clifton is significant if we pass our minds through time just another couple of hundred years. We get to the Jacobite Rebellion. And this is the critical moment when Bonaparte Charlie and the ragtagger of uh, his Highland army were retreating from Derby and they came through Clifton and they met the Duke of Cumberland and his forces. And they had what in effect was the last battle or skirmish on English soil. So that's quite a significant moment. Duke's horses were known as a, a squadron, I gather, because on Whale Moor, there's three clumps of trees that are called the squadron of the horse that relate to this, which is rather interesting. That's uh, the Lowther's put those up there. But can you tell us something about that skirmish, Bruce? It was the retreating uh, Jacobite rebels being caught up by a contingent of horse from the Royalists. Um, they put up a good fight, apparently, and uh, there's a small mass grave of some of the English troopers uh, at St Cuthbert's Church in Clifton, I think, as a result. They put a, enough of a resistance up, I think, in terms of meeting the, the oncoming uh, Duke of Cumberland's troops to put the Duke off, actually engaging them in a proper battle. Uh, but certainly between Clifton and Penrith, and it, was, uh, it had to wait. So they bought themselves time at little cost uh, in terms of the loss of troops or soldiers, at least certainly to the Jacobites, uh, bought themselves enough time to retreat even closer to the border. But that's, of course, another story as to what then happened. <laughs> there was always that story that there, some were captured and taken to Carlisle Castle uh, and summarily... Some were allowed to return to the Highlands to warn the Highlanders must never do this again, and some were hung, from which came the magical song, ye take the high road and I'll take the low road, but I'll be in Scotland before ye. Uh, whether that's true, I don't know, but it's been a wonderful journey, and it's rather interesting, Bruce, to reflect on all these the roads. I think the M6 gives us a wonderful soundtrack to this whole podcast, really. It's been there almost as a constant in the background. And it just serves to highlight the fact that even today, we are following routes that date back thousands of years, really, up this western side of Britain. Even through thousands of years of history, we can still see a continuity. History keeps marching on ahead of us, but being in a position to be able to reflect on it in the company of somebody of your calibre is wonderful. I've really enjoyed it. But we're not quite at the end because we got to our quick-fire questions at no. that moment, which is always relished by our guests, <laughs> <laughs> certainly relished by our listeners. <laughs> Have you a first Lakeland memory? A first Lakeland memory? Oh, well, yes. I, I, before I came to live in Cumbria, I came on an outward-bound course and based over in Estale, and... Um, <laughs> there were various first memories from that Outward Bound course, but one of them was uh, having to construct our own little bivvy out in the middle of nowhere overnight and survive with, I think it was one can of beans or something, and my bivvy didn't work. Uh, I got wet. Seriously? But that was going to be a theme for the rest of my time in Cambria, so <laughs> I was, it was a good start. It was a good... It got you into the feel for the place. I was going to ask a simple question, a hotel or tent, but I think you've covered that there. <laughs> uh, red squirrel or Herdwick sheep? Oh, red squirrel. Have you a favourite Cambrian fell? Well, if I'm allowed to regard the Pennines as Cambrian fells, a specific fell, although if you wanted to pin me down, I would say probably something like Blotting Rays or Thackmore uh, above uh, Croglin. That's it, fabulous. I've been up there, and I now know what Blotting Rays means. Oh, which is? Blotern, which is black tarn. It's the cairn of the black tarn, and, and if you go up there, as you have, there is the black tarn there now. Uh, have you your perfect Lakeland day? Oh, I think it's a pleasantly warm day, out of season, uh, with a good fell, 
probably in the Lake District this time, uh, ending with a pint. And where would that pint be? The pint be, well, I don't think I have anywhere specific. Well, there's, a, there's a nice little pub in uh, Grasmere, which I'm desperately trying to remember. Tweedies? No, 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 no. no, no. But anyway, yeah, somewhere, uh, the, down there. somewhere down there, a nice, a nice good pint, not too oh. warm. You'd have been up on Silver Howell. Sergeant Man, there's a good hill to go up. Have you a favourite food or beverage associated with Cumbria? Well, I have to say, although I live with a vegetarian, that the occasional Cumberland sausage, which is a bit corny, but it, when you live with a vegetarian, it's quite pleasant, actually. <laughs> I am allowed that every now and oh, then. Oh, yeah, well, that's, it's, good, it's good to be indulged in a very modest way. Uh, have you a favourite town or village in Cumbria you always love going to? Oh, I think, again, it's on the eastern side. Being a northern boy, I'm not particularly feel associated with the lakes. It's more the Eden Valley. If it was a village in the Eden Valley, maybe Moorland. There you are. Yeah, very good. In true Desert Highland Discs tradition, uh, if you were cast away and you had to have a Cumbrian book, which one would that be? <laughs> Oh dear me, a Cumbrian book. I think, and this is going to be really bizarre for a, you know, but I am an archaeologist and historian. I would take the Lanacost Cartulary. It's basically a register of the landholding of the uh, Lanacost Priory, and it dates back to the uh, 13th century, uh, and it's a wonderful historical record. Wonderful artwork on that. Excellent. I love the cartoons around the edges, the bits that have been added to it. It's a real comical bits isn't there oh yeah wonderful. oh yeah That's wonderful well it proves your worth and your love of history um if you were reincarnated into a period of cumbrian history when might that have been oh i think i would go uh, i would go into prehistory i want to uh, i want to see more of what was going on in prehistory before all this messy stuff and bureaucrats like the romans turned up you'd rather go to mabra and see what was going on really there oh yeah well, it's been an immense pleasure to be with you, Bruce. You've added tremendously to our, my knowledge. Uh, it all helps to glue together that passage of time that we seldom have time to really understand. If you know where to go, you can find it. So coming to Maybra, going down to Broome Castle, up to Clifton, and here we are, almost at the end of the journey. We're going to go by the round table. Well, we'll find a good table to have a, a beverage ourselves. And thank you so much. My pleasure. Journey's end, back at the M6, uh, constant companion through the, the day. But I think we just about did it, didn't we, Mark? We're not quite 45 minutes, but we certainly covered all the locations and my head is crammed. Well, in fact, there was so much, we didn't talk about a whole welter of things. We had to just sort of shed them because we, we, we wanted a timeline. And lots of things tend to overlap, as you know, listeners, in your own lives. You come across a little bit of history and then there's something that's more recent that sits next to it that's probably even more interesting. <laughs> but we managed to forget about the broom carriage and... and broom the, hall. A broom we, hall. We ignore that and the, the stone table. And the stone table. Oh, yeah, yeah, the pub. Yeah, there's all kinds of things. Just, this is a second podcast waiting to happen. Yeah, we've we got plenty to go out. Um, anyway, thanks to Bruce. A very succinct guide anyway we have some correspondence mark uh, uh, yes you're going to kick off with your one because this is very special oh it is well we reached all around the world with our podcast it seems and uh, rory hansen who drives a ups lorry <laughs> coast to coast in the states he lives at uh, san rafael in california but drives every week with his co-driver Mel Dixon Jr. Oh, and yeah. they go coast to coast, but coast to coast here would be some bees to Robin Hood's Bay. Yeah, doing a wine right. That's right. Well, for, the, for them, it's some bees to, well, let's say Beirut. Yes. <laughs> it's a long journey. Quite remarkable. And Rory, if you're listening, I hope you're enjoying this podcast and we, we really appreciate your company. Yes, we think that Rory is our furthest flung country stride listener, but if, there, if there's anybody else out there further afield, do get in touch. And we've also had some very nice lockdown correspondence, Mark. We had a lot of emails and messages on social come in through lockdown. 
um, from people who appreciated what we did and just got a couple here. So this is Oliver Jenner. Just wanted to say a big thank you for the podcast. I've gone back from the beginning and have listened to them all. I either go out for a walk in my local area while doing my lockdown exercise and listen to them as if I'm walking along with you or I listen at home and think about all the scenery you're describing. My girlfriend and I are halfway through our Wainwrights, so this is much needed whilst we can't get up onto the hills. Keep up the good work. That's Ollie Jenner. There's another lovely one here. This is uh, Ollie Brown saying, Thank you so much for the podcast. I came across them at the beginning of lockdown. They've kept me company on my London walks. I've spent many a holiday in the lakes and had planned to be up there in April for my birthday. This has been transferred to next year. However, I hope to get up in October or November. Hopefully meet up one day in a nice Lakeland pub after a great walk. Thanks, Ollie. And yeah, really lovely to hear that, that you appreciate what we're doing. Some housekeeping. You can find all previous podcasts of which there are now... This is 33. 32 previous podcasts at www.countrystride.co.uk and you can transport yourself all over the county from the Solway Marshes up north to Whitehaven on the west coast to... What's the furthest south we've been, Mark? Do you know we're due to go south? We haven't... Uh, oh, I know what it Coniston, is. we went to Nibthwaite. What about good. Dent? Dent? Oh, that's right, we went to Dent and, of course, the last episode we were in uh, Malastang, that's to the east. Yes, we've that had, might be it, yeah. Yeah. We always welcome new followers on social. We are on Facebook and Twitter, Mark. Oh, at Country Stride One. So if you fancy seeing a picture of Rory, the long-distance truck driver, then uh, Twitter is the place to head to. And as you say, Mark, at Country Stride One. If you like what we do, please do rate us. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes or your podcast provider. We've got some wonderful podcasts coming up very briefly, Mark. Yes, we've got some really interesting ones coming up. We've got children's literature. We're also going to look at upland pastures. And then we have got Canon Rawnsley in, in our sites as well. Anyway, that's, uh, that's all from us in Cumbria alongside the M6, as busy as ever. Thanks for now.